Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear. The show's called With Kirk and John, but it's me today. Um, John is in the middle of a big case right now. I just finished a big one. Sometimes it's hard to get our schedules to match up. But anyway, uh, I want to tell you about some work that's been done really kind of in the realm of psychology more than law, but it does involve law because uh, people are constantly trying to get a better understanding, an improved understanding of how jurors uh, behave, how they react to different ways that evidence is presented to them, how they respond to the use of technology in the courtroom, how they respond to jury instructions and, and how they're given and what they're told to do, and also basically the dynamics of when people interact and debate things. And this might seem like a fairly simple process that we pretty much understand how people interact, but we do have to remember that when people are pulled from their normal lives, brought in for jury duty, and it is a duty, you know, that it's, it's work that has to be done, and, and we're all very appreciative of the fact that jurors play that role because after all, it's it's a very important part of the jury process, the justice process. And without it, we wouldn't have the ability to have someone who's presumably neutral, um, unbiased, you know, to come in and take their own look at the evidence. And I know this from being an advocate on both sides of this process. I was a prosecutor years ago, and I've been a defense lawyer for a long time. And depending on which point of view you're advocating, how you look at the evidence is definitely affected by what your position is. And try, as you may, to be objective and neutral in your analysis of things. There's, there's always that influence on your process of thinking. Uh, of the advocacy role that you're playing. So when I know that I have a client, a defendant, whose interests I'm advancing and whose rights I'm protecting, you know, I'm well aware that I look at the evidence in a particular way. I'm looking for how it all interrelates, what we say about different things that are being presented, how the evidence was collected, and it's all with the mind's eye towards you know, how does this affect our position? Same thing happens with the prosecution. They look at it in terms of, you know, the job is to present it, obtain a conviction by going through that process. So a jury has none of that, again, presumably. And it's designed in such a way, I mean, it's kind of primitive when you think about it, because this isn't like, you know, modern technology or science or anything like that that's involved. It's just people, right? But in our country, we believe that if you bring in people from the community and ask them to participate in this uh, justice process, they should feel a sense of, of ownership, um, should be willing to listen and make their own conclusions without all of those filters of... Uh, you know, the the box that inherently goes with a an adversarial process. So 
there, there are a few different organizations that, you know, do these studies in jury behavior, and uh, there's one in particular that I've gone to several um, seminars, and they set up a sort of a mock trial type situation. And although in a real trial it is not possible or legal to monitor the jury discussions or what they talk about, um, in a you know fake trial situation as an experiment, it, it can be done. And that's why I've seen that, where they have uh, like a closed-circuit camera. The jury isn't aware that they're being monitored, but again, it's not a real trial, so it doesn't it doesn't really matter that way. And the idea is to see what things they thought were important during the trial presentation, how they responded to different things. And then, as with any quasi-scientific experiment, there's manipulation of some variables. And one of those variables that seems to make a very big difference is the process whereby juries are instructed on the law. And part of the problem is that when we're dealing with concepts such as reasonable doubt, there's no mathematical way to say what that is. It'd be nice if we did have like a formulaic way because numbers are numbers and math is math, but um, it it doesn't work that way. It's really more of a um, subjective sort of uh, way of reinforcing the fact that where there is reasonable doubt, uh, the default position is that the jury must find a defendant not guilty. And by emphasizing that burden is on the state and is always on the state, what we are supposed to do is see how that process plays out, again, with this body of people that do not have any experience investigating, researching the case, and you know, preparing the presentation of evidence. So one thing that does appear to make a very big difference is how judges instruct on this reasonable doubt issue. And again, it's been a challenge forever, ever since we've even had the concept as to how it's defined. And over the years, there's been language sort of added to these um, instructions that judges give. And just so you know, jury instructions in our state, there's no hard and fast rule. There's no requirement as to how they need to be, but there are pattern instructions that are tried and true. In other words, they've gone up through the process of being vetted. They're supposed to be uh, the most neutral and fair way of explaining things to the jury. But I can tell you every single time I'm sitting there listening to a judge instruct the jury, all of the little nuances uh, are just seem to make such a big difference. Like if, if the judge even pauses or emphasizes a particular word or where he's looking, I mean, there's, or he or she is looking, it's all kinds of different things that in your brain you're thinking, oh God, has a, that's really significant, you know, how, how he's explaining this. But over the years, there's been language added at various points to, to, in an attempt to, um, help jurors understand this concept. Uh, on its face, it's very simple. The burden's on the state. 
It has to be beyond all reasonable doubt. If you have a reasonable doubt, you have to find him or her not guilty. If that burden has been overcome, then go ahead and find the person guilty. Seems pretty simple. But then we add all these other things in there, like um, a reasonable doubt is a doubt for which a reason can be given. Okay, well, that seems sense. Um, a reasonable doubt is not such a doubt as would be used to escape the responsibility of reaching a decision. Okay, I guess that makes sense. But then there's this very controversial statement that says, you are not to search for doubt, you are to search for the truth. And that, that sounds great, right? You know, you're supposed to really try and figure out what happened here. What are the facts? Juries find facts. Judges don't find facts. They, find, they instruct on the law. They interpret the law. The jury finds or determines what happened, right? But when we add this a layer of, like, don't search for doubt, a lot of jurors we see end up either getting confused or they they disregard what we do want them to do, which is a complete and full analysis of the evidence. We haven't come up with a better way of saying what we're trying to say here. And, you know, there are some projects that are out there to try and advise on how this could be better done. But oftentimes, when we see how jurors respond to a statement like that, they they end up not doing, uh, not engaging in a full debate because there some people will think we're not supposed to stop sit here and talk about doubt because we're not supposed to search for it. And if you're not searching, quote unquote, searching for it, what are you doing? You know, so. We, we've seen that in cases where that particular instruction was given, juries behave differently than when that instruction is not given. And there's a school of thought that that instruction is not helpful and, in fact, can be somewhat misleading. But there's another school of thought that um, in the attempt to obtain ever-increasing supposed accuracy in this process, that it, it can be helpful. But it's an ongoing debate, and... Um, is now time for a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. I think it's generally understood that um, when cases rely upon eyewitness testimony alone without there being additional layers of forensic evidence or scientific evidence that um, it, we, we have a concern that the results of a verdict are based on so many variables that are unidentifiable that it appears to be a bit more random and that that bothers people in this world of criminal justice. And, and that kind of results in so much of the um, adversarial part of the process. You know, like so many things in life, what someone says, what they remember, how they repeat something, how they... Uh, recall things has been usually a period of time has gone by and there've been a lot of influences in how that process occurs and of course there's nothing wrong with that because it has to happen that way right um but when statements are given usually to the police it is sometimes very soon after an event has happened sometimes it's been quite a long time uh there are age issues there are 
factors such as whether people were under the influence of something or whether someone was um, in an emotional state, etc. We all recognize that these are things that make someone's recollection of events. Um, it adds an element of questioning reliability of it, just naturally. It just naturally happens. So there's something called the CSI effect. <laughs> And not, not pointing fingers at any particular TV show, but the influence, you know, we have so many of these shows that tell stories, fictional stories about the justice process, and they're riddled with inaccuracies because of the fact that it has to fit within either a half hour or an hour time slot. And some of these shows are so beyond... Uh, any resemblance to reality that it's almost comical. But that's entertainment, right? So real trials aren't anywhere near as entertaining, and they shouldn't be. It should be a, um, you know, a, what do they say, a neutral, sober look at the evidence in a calm, rational way. Yet, there's always the temptation from both sides to add some drama to the process to make it more interesting than it really is, or to make it more shocking, or to play on the emotion um, of different things. And that, that's presumably a bad thing, because jurors are not supposed to respond, you know, necessarily to emotion. On the other hand, you know, emotion is a part of life. It's a part of the way people perceive things, and it's a part of the way people relate things to others. It often is in an emotional way. But there has been widely regarded a phenomenon that, that continues to affect our system. Now, when you ask jurors, does anybody think that real life is like any of those TV shows? They'll all say, no, it, it isn't. I know that. But you see, these the shows are also a symptom of the fact that an effort to address other aspects of evidence other than what someone says has really resulted in almost an expectation that there will be more than just what a person will say on the stand. It happens in almost every trial where by the time someone is testifying, what they say is different than what they originally said. And sometimes it's very different. Sometimes it's not very different. But depending upon how many times they have had to go through this process of recalling what they did or saw, um, it, it tends to stray from what was originally reported. Now, that can be for a number of reasons. You know, we often say memories don't get better over time, but we're all familiar with the concept that when you think hard about something, you can sometimes remember additional details that you didn't, that didn't hit you. Either it wasn't as important to you, but now it seems important, or it was just another aspect of it that the person didn't um, necessarily at that time recall in detail. And then over time, it, it sort of solidifies. But the other side of that coin is that the way that our brains work, that we, we strive to be accurate. We want to portray things um, where we're actually relaying our perceptions, our thoughts, our experience, what we saw, what we heard, etc. But because 
there's a process whereby those memories, those perceptions have to be converted to words. And then those words are then formalized. And then the lawyers get their hands on those statements. And there are aspects of it that one side might like or not like. And then, you know, there's the whole process of like bringing out what each side thinks is important about those statements. So it starts to stray from what the original perception was. And like I said, every single case, uh, we see differences in how things come out. Sometimes they're significant, sometimes they're not. But that kind of adds to this whole, again, a phenomenon where if there is a way to bring in some kind of evidence that is scientific in nature, it the theory is that it gets away from all of those uh, subtleties and and problems, you know, our own human um, fallibilities. But the problem is that so much of this quote-unquote science has been invented solely for the purpose of assisting prosecutors, assisting the prosecution, assisting the state. And if you ever look at how much money gets poured into that there are entire careers that are created with the sole purpose of assisting in, in prosecuting people and you know there's nothing wrong with that we all know that happens but you know on the other side of the table there are entire careers that are built on criticizing that science and you know there are experts that can come in and testify about what's wrong with the way that the state expert did something or the conclusions that that person reached. So it kind of ends up incorporating those same problems that we have with eyewitness testimony, even in the realm of quote-unquote forensics. But, you know, the vast majority of the cases that, that we deal with rely greatly on um, this eyewitness aspect of it. And we know from very hard-learned lessons over the years that a person or a group of people can be completely wrong about what they thought they saw or heard or perceived. And it, it can be something where until years and years later they realize that in the face of other evidence. And it's always shocking and surprising when you hear about these cases, like the Central Park jogger case in New York City. Several, many teenage boys were convicted based on evidence that had been really advanced and later turned out to be just completely not true. But the the victim in that case, the alleged victim, it turns out, yes, she was assaulted and yes, she was unfortunately violated, but it wasn't any of the people that got convicted for it. And she in particular, I don't know if you know this, but I'll tell you, has become an advocate for um, changing the justice system in such a way so that we have the opportunity to go back and re-examine how these original witness statements were created. To make matters worse in that case, all of these young men uh, ended up in some fashion confessing to something they didn't do, which seems kind of hard to believe, but it happened. And a study of that process shows that at every step of the way, there was something that was done by some, by a variety of people that were investigating the case, uh, 
were so passionately interested in convicting the the bad guys that even in subtle ways they ended up manipulating the evidence manipulating people's memories and it's just a case study on on how easily something can go very very wrong and even when you have several people that are coming in and saying similar things about what they saw or heard that's something that we know is a risk in this process and add to that now stuff that um falls in that forensic realm and some of it is stuff that you know the science isn't really disputed it's something that adds another layer of circumstantial evidence or corroborating evidence but in general uh it tends not to be you know the smoking gun and it's just some aspect of the case all right time for another break and we'll be right back if you are over a certain age i'm sure you'll appreciate what we're about to talk about and that is um how getting from one place to another traveling in your car has dramatically changed over the years if you remember what it used to be like before everybody had a phone before we had gps and all of these other things you would go to uh, a gas station and every year you'd buy something called the wisconsin gazetteer and i feel bad for the company that makes those they still do make them by the way but it's a map of the entire state with every road and every you you had you have to figure out by looking with your eyes on what route you wanted to take and you'd either highlight it in the gazetteer or you'd take out something that we used to have called paper and then you'd use something that used to exist called a pencil and you'd actually write out you know where your where your route is taking you what road you're going to take and you'd plan all this out and then if construction happened or if there was a detour you just kind of dealt with it you know you were responsible for figuring all that out and then reacting to changes under the circumstances well as we all know all that has changed and when you're on your way somewhere i mean i always find a little surprising and i don't know if i would use the word creepy but you know just kind of a funny feeling about it when my phone says gives me suggested destinations and it's based on where i've driven historically and my phone seems to know where i live and where i work even though i never told it that just because of the frequency that it observes notes that where i'm going and what i'm doing in my daily life now my job takes me all over the state so i find it kind of funny that um you know where do you where where is your destination it'll give you a few suggestions like hey uh, how about the wapaka county courthouse you know well if i had gone there a few times in the span of a couple weeks then it thinks that that's somewhere i might be going because it's following my activity it's noting all of that so I was reading something um, last week about some of the concerns about the way that, uh, by its nature, your phone keeps track of you. And it's not just where you are, it's how often you go someplace or what types of places you go to and so forth. And, you know, a lot of these driving apps, I think 
one of the most common ones is Apple Maps, there's Google Maps, there's Waze, um, all these different uh, applications that a lot of people use to assist in getting somewhere. And it has been very nice that you don't have to, you know, pre-plan and, and use that pen and pencil or paper and pencil to to take the time to figure all that out in advance. But it occurs to me and a lot of people that um, these are companies that provide a service and the service is typically free, you know, quote unquote free. But we have to look at how marketing and other um, economic factors can be an influence on how those apps work. I mean, it, it, it occurs to me that when you are going to go someplace and your phone tells you there's three different ways that you can get there. Usually, you're going to pick the fastest, but it gives you other suggestions, too. And have you ever thought about how, well, wait a minute, maybe there are more McDonald's establishments on one that you'll pass by on one particular route versus another, and maybe your phone will encourage you to go that way. Um, or, if your phone's keeping track of everywhere you go and everything you do, maybe your phone knows that on a trip over an hour, you're going to tend to stop and get gas or take a restroom break and you might do it at a particular place like BP or Quick Trip or whatever. And isn't it uh, a distinct possibility that your phone can be contributing to what you actually do, where you stop and, and could it be guiding you towards particular things? I, I find that all very interesting. and. Um, Another phenomenon that I'm sure you're familiar with is rerouting. And, you know, I, I remember hearing um, some public safety concerns about this, and I, I've actually witnessed it myself. Um, you may have as well. I was in Miami once, um, landed at the airport. This was a few years ago. And trying to get from one part of the city, you know, through the city to head south, heading toward the Florida Keys. And my phone kept on rerouting me because of traffic. Now, if you've been to Miami, you know traffic is bad. It's one of those cities that has bad traffic, especially around the airport, and especially given the fact that it's a very large, you know, metropolitan area. So as I'm driving, uh, my car says, traffic ahead, rerouting. And then if you go the way that it reroutes you, guess what? Everybody else who has a driving app got that same <laughs> suggestion to reroute. So the traffic jam that would have been is now being relocated to another place, and then there's a traffic jam. And you get there, it reroutes you again. And everybody, it's like herding cattle, you know? And th there are concerns because it impacts basic, uh, you know, in the moment. Uh, management of traffic, the police and civil engineers, people that design roads, people that time construction, uh, you know, is it going to be overnight? Is it going to be at a particular time of day? Are they going to close one lane? Are they going to, what are they going to do with detours and things like that? And this has the potential to mess all that up in ways that it's not manageable and potentially dangerous. So I ended up getting rerouted about seven times and uh, 
you know, still hadn't left the city of Miami, you know, because it just kept leading me to new traffic jams that were being created by these apps. But even more controversial, and it's it's actually been some years now, but it continues to be a debate, is the fact that when using one of these apps, you can report if there is a speed trap. Well, really what you're doing is you're saying, I just passed by a cop car or a state trooper or something like that. And you can have that added uh, to you know everybody else being notified there is a cop car ahead or that you just passed. So, you know, the law does not permit somebody, I don't know if you know this, but you should, if you pass by a, a police car that appears to be measuring people's speed, you are not allowed by law to flash your high beams at the on, at the cars that are approaching from the other direction as a, as a warning. You are not supposed to do that. There's a specific law that says that is against the law. You're not supposed to warn other motorists that there's, hey, you better slow down because there's a cop. You know, you're about to come into a speed trap. Now, the rationale behind that, there's actually a couple of different rationales. One is that flashing your high beams is only supposed to be done under very specific circumstances because, especially if it's at night, you can end up, you know, shining your high beams into another motorist's eyes and it can affect their ability to safely control their vehicle. So it's a, a practice that is discouraged on a regular basis. But, you know, we do it to say, hey, you don't have your lights on. You know, hey, it's dark out and you should have your lights on. And you send a little message by flicking your high beams. You are allowed to warn other motorists if there's a herd of deer that you just passed and you're saying, hey, slow down or whatever. That's permitted. But that same behavior is not supposed to happen in order to say, watch out, the cops ahead, cops coming up. But that's exactly what these apps do, is they say, hey, speed trap coming up ahead. Now, in reality, is that a bad thing? Because if it results in everybody slowing down and hence uh, enhancing the safety um, of the roads because people are not speeding, you know, I've had that happen to me, speed trap coming up. You look at your speed, you make sure that you're going the right speed, and then when you pass that, cop car and they're not pulling anybody over you're like okay great thank you that was nice now i try to drive the speed limit always because it's a law and you should follow laws that's one reason why we have laws is that it gives us guidance on how to uh, live in a society that has rules and if you know what the rules are you're given the gift of being able to make the choice to follow them. It's really an ethical matter. So you have that pride in knowing that you are a law-abiding person. So people make fun of me all the time. I don't, you know, I don't have a lead foot. I don't go 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Um, but we'll talk more about this when we come back right after these messages. So getting back to our discussion about driving and ethics and... You know, I've noted many times when I'm doing a jury trial, a judge will ask jurors if they've ever had any interaction with the police. We usually want to know that because sometimes people have a negative 
interaction and, and both sides would like to know if that had happened um, because law enforcement are involved in some way in practically every case. But uh, sometimes judges make a bit of a joke of it. Like, you know, have you ever been pulled over for speeding? I have to raise my hand. And yeah, okay, I get it. It happens. And it's not the most um, egregious offense that exists on books. But I'm always struck by the fact that if it's a rule, and if you're not supposed to speed, why does everybody do it? And, you know, there's when we talk about legal philosophies and the role of the law in our society, you know, one of those very fundamental purposes behind it is to give us guidance on how be expected behavior should be followed. And speeding is one of those areas where we, as a, as a whole, more or less reject it as being an important thing. Now, if you're going 40 miles an hour over the speed limit, then nobody likes that and people get upset, of course. But, you know, there's we all kind of believe that there is this gray zone. You know, if you're going 5 to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, no one's really going to care. And then you add to that the fact that it seems everybody is doing that. So if you want to drive the speed limit because it's the law, there are times all been there where it's probably more dangerous to go exactly 55 or 65 or 70 because everybody else is whizzing by you but i think that it's an example of a lot of other things i mean one reason that i love the law and the way that i'm so fascinated by how it is a component of our society is that Again, I always view it as if you know the law, if you know what the rules are, you can take pride in the fact that you're following them. And that enhances our freedoms in a lot of different ways. Now, when we start having too many laws and it's it's uh, basically um, mandating types of behavior in such a way that it's constricting on our society, which, by the way, a law against speeding is not constricting us. It just isn't just... You can, you can and should just drive the speed limit, okay? But here's another aspect of this that I know is part of the controversy that's been brewing is that, let's face it, one reason why people get speeding tickets and one reason why they're issued to people is because there's a fine that you have to pay. And it can be... And there's a range of fines, but they're always in the hundreds of dollars, even for a, a minor speeding violation. That can be the case. And we have come to rely upon that revenue stream to support, uh, you know, the income that comes to the state, the county, the city, whatever, in order to fund road projects, even fireworks on the 4th of July. Right? So there, there's an economic aspect of this that communities have to and have come to rely upon this income stream that flows from tickets. Now, this sounds a bit insidious, but isn't it true that a lot of people using these apps are slowing down whenever there is a, you know, a notice that there's a speed trap up ahead the logical consequence is that there will be fewer people speeding when they're going past 
a police officer, which means there will be fewer opportunities to pull people over for speeding, which means there will be fewer tickets written, which means there will be a lesser income flow from these tickets that are issued. Now, in an ideal world, no one would speed and there wouldn't be any need for speeding tickets. But people do speed, and there are speeding tickets, and that basically ends up being part of every you know, governmental unit's um, income flow. And when people forecast budgets, like let's say the city has to think about how are we going to fund projects A, B, and C. Well, we can anticipate that in a typical year, we're going to write so many speeding tickets. And if that number goes down, it, it impacts the city's ability to, to, to perform its basic functions, right? That That's... <laughs> If you get where I'm going with this, it's it's kind of like our society is encouraging. We need people to break those laws because we depend on it. And it doesn't seem odd. Well, I think more importantly, one of the reasons why this um, has some opposition is that uh, we, we've all encountered this where, you know, there's a speed trap coming up. People then slow down. But right after that, people speed up, right? <laughs> all at the same time. So people are all slowing down, all speeding up, all at the same time. And you can see why there could be a safety issue there as well. But in general, I mean, I think that if you look at it in the abstract, there's probably a, a good service being performed by getting people to slow down. Now, the old-fashioned way before you had your apps is that you used your own eyes, and if you saw a police officer coming up, you'd make sure that you were going the speed limit. But, you know, they have pretty advanced technology when it comes to measuring your speed and nine times out of ten they know how fast you're going before you even know they're there so again the, the better thing would be don't speed <laughs> anyway I, I do want to talk very briefly because we're coming up on the end of the show here pretty soon that we are still in the midst of an ongoing crisis of uh, a dramatic lawyer shortage not just here in Wisconsin, but all over the country. And what had been sort of a, a natural process whereby people go and get their bachelor's degrees, they then go to law school to get their legal education, they obtain their law licenses, and then they branch off into one of the many, many fields of law that can be practiced. And although we haven't really seen a decline in law school enrollment. We haven't really seen a decline in the number of people obtaining their degrees and obtaining their licenses. We've seen a huge drop in the number of people that go into either prosecuting cases or defending cases. And it's it's been a trend that, that has continued. People are trying to figure out why. Because one obvious thing that you probably don't even have to ask people about is the fact that we continue to not pay people enough for the hard work they do. And I mean both prosecutors and defense lawyers. And at the point in time where someone is making career decisions, especially given how expensive law school can be and how people have student debt and so on, they have to look at the reality of how they're going to be able to repay these things. And that tends to drive people away from the more modest or 
I guess, intermediate paying type jobs. And people out of necessity end up seeking the higher paying jobs. Now, there are law firms that have 700 lawyers in them. They bill by the hour. They have corporate clients that provide a steady stream of revenue. And those firms can operate like a giant corporation with all different levels of management and complexity up and down the ladder of career progression. And a lot of that is because we have monetized so many things in our society. Um, If you're injured, that means money. If you are discriminated against, that means money. And all these things that, you know, can potentially get people money in their pockets. There's a lot of lawyers that are part of that process and make their own living and a pretty lucrative one at that by fighting over money doesn't work that way in the criminal justice system. It's the laws that our legislature makes and passes, and then the application of those laws to people. And the fact that we are relying upon public funding for practically all of this process is something that has taken a huge toll on all of this. And we are seeing it impact how this process plays out to the extent that we're seeing a lot more cases that are not being really fully investigated. The representation of defendants is suffering greatly because there are not enough people that are either willing to do that or are being attracted to other areas of law that will help them pay their student loans. So you probably know this, but our firm is working on, has been working on, proposing solutions to this. It's gaining some momentum, but we've got a long way to go. That's all the time we have for this week. Please tune in next week as you can every week here on 1330 and 101.5 and all over the world on the World Wide Webs. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.